You're listening to TIP. This is a great first layer of protection, but everything has kryptonite. And if you talk to Superman, kryptonite's not good. In this week's episode, I talk with Brian Bradley about what asset protection is and why it matters, when a new real estate investor should consider asset protection, whether new real estate investors need an LLC or not to start investing, how to set up an LLC, the most common and dangerous misconceptions around LLCs, and much, much more. Brian Bradley is the Senior Managing Partner at Bradley Legal Corp., of counsel attorney at Laudmel and Laudmel, an advisory board member and lead attorney of the Asset Protection Council, and certified instructor at the National Academy of Continuing Legal Education. Brian is a leading educator and nationally recognized asset protection attorney for high-risk professionals, entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and ultra-high-net-worth families. Brian's goal is to give you peace of mind knowing your assets are safe. Brian was selected to the Best Attorneys of America list 2020, Lawyers of Distinction list three years in a row, 2018 through 2020, Super Lawyers Rising Star list 2021 and 2015, nominated to America's Top 100 High-Stake Litigators list, and the Top 100 in Real Estate. Legal concepts like asset protection can be very boring to learn about, but they can be very important to learn and understand. And in this episode, Brian and I try to make it entertaining for you all. Instead of asking the normal asset protection questions, I try to ask the questions you're thinking as you listen to the episode. I was truly fascinated throughout the episode, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys do too. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Brian Bradley. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Rob, for having me on, having me back on, you know, and this is going to be a great topic, a fun topic. I know we're going to be talking about, you know, like geeky law stuff, but I think I can liven it up a little bit. Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, Tell us how you got into real estate, law, and why you specifically focus on asset protection. So I am purely an asset protection attorney, and I got into asset protection from the trial side of the world and just seeing clients' lives being completely turned upside down. And just through, you know, going through work, you know, as in court as a trial lawyer, I just got a lot of notoriety. I was selected to America's Best Attorney uh, last year, 2020, top 100 high stake litigators list, super lawyer rising star a couple years in a row, um, lawyer distinction three years in a row, top 100 in real estate. And I think like I got into asset protection because I just got tired of people coming in having problems after they're getting sued. And there's really nothing I can do after that. And I got really tired of seeing people losing everything after the fact when we could have done something better beforehand to help preserve their wealth. And we just really are living in a fascinating time right now. You know, like we're seeing laws and policies drastically change every day, people getting sued and being sued that normally wouldn't be getting sued. So I just realized, you know, protecting your assets, your wealth and your legacy and your retirement is more important now than ever. And a lot of people just have these false sense of security. you know, And I feel where it comes from, this false sense, is people thinking that they don't need to do anything and just you know, ride lady luck, or that they think that their insurance will always cover them, which it won't. 
It's important to have, you need it, you know, you need good insurance. But we're getting more and more clients with claims that are just radically in excess of their insurance coverage. And especially like real estate. I have some clients where, you know, there's this doctor, Jersey doctor, actually the California doctor owns a Jersey property, just got sued for a wrongful death suit because he ended up renting out his place to a gang member unknown. And there was a party, fight broke out, someone got shot and killed. So it's like things like that that you just can't protect yourself from with insurance. To where it's like, okay, here's a doomsday lawsuit, then what? Or the next problem, you know, people forget to level up their insurance as their wealth grows, or they think an umbrella policy, you know, is gonna cover them and just cover the rest of it. And that's not what it does. It doesn't provide that. It just provides excess extra coverage with the same loopholes and exit strategies. Or a big one, you know, that we're gonna break down is people think that their family estate plan, known as a revocable living trust, will protect them which they can't, they aren't designed to, you know, they only come into effect when you die to avoid probate. Or a really big misconception that I know we're going to break down a lot here, you know, for your listeners is the LLC. And they think that, you know, it's a one-stop silver bullet, but they missed the first word, first letter limited. They tell you straight up in the name. And, you know, I see a lot of these and I know we're going to break all these down. And so being in the legal system, the sad thing is that it just, you know, if you look around, the legal system's broken or just a sue happy nirvana. And so what we do is we just provide peace of mind and lifestyle preservation and really focus on just how collectible you are. And within our network, we're now protecting collectively over 5 billion worth of assets and I'll represent clients nationally. A lot of people listening to the show today are new investors or maybe not even investors yet. They just want to become investors or trying to learn how. They might be thinking, well, I don't have assets. I don't really have much to protect yet. So when should a beginning investor start to think about asset protection? When does it start to become important? And how should they start thinking about it when they're very new to real estate? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think you need to think about it just like in any business. You need to start thinking about protecting what you're going to have from the moment you decide, hey, I'm going to start a business. Hey, I'm going to um, go buy something. And that's when the problems start. And so, and, and especially when you're new and you're beginning, that's when most of the problems start. And when you're getting sued and you're a greenhorn and you're just investing in real estate and you're adding liability, one lawsuit like a mold issue, you're going to be completely wiped out. Or you know the Jersey issue. Or if you're going into like a short-term rental, there's this case in Louisiana. A judgment came down where the uh, landlord was renting out to a short-term renter. The short-term renter was getting plowed all day long, like most people party and you know Airbnb stuff, anyways. And the guy, dumb drunk, decided to do what dumb drunks do. He was pounding bottles of whiskey all day long at 2 in the morning, decided to run out the back balcony, did a head dive in a shallow pond on the property, broke his neck, became a paraplegic, sued the owner, and got an $11 million judgment out of it. And so that can be you from the first property. And so I always say, like, if you're, if you're going to start investing in something, you first need to start thinking about your levels of protection. But don't go for the Taj Mahal. You know, like you're not there yet. So you start at different foundation levels, you know, like for, you know, be like LLCs and insurance. Then you level up as you grow, limited partnership. Then you level up as you grow to asset protection trust. And so as you're starting out, you just need to realize you may not think that you're wealthy, but the person renting your property does. 
Let's talk about LLCs because one of the most common things that I see new investors say when they're getting into real estate is that they need an LLC to start investing. But when you actually go to start investing with an LLC, especially if you're new, you usually start with smaller properties. You're not getting into that commercial debt yet. So you can't usually get a loan to an LLC. So you kind of run into this dynamic of, I want the protection of an LLC, but I can't get financing to an LLC. So what do I do? So talk to us a bit about LLCs and how investing in real estate for new investors and how to think about it. Yeah, I'll break down like the positives of LLCs first, and then we can do some of like the stuff you're not being told about them. But the first part of it, like funding, I would generally say get the funding in your own personal name. You're going to get a better rate, and then we just transfer it out of your personal name into the LLC later on. But when it comes to asset protection, like I said, we have different layers. You know, so I think about it. You know, like I'm from the mountains. I'm from Lake Tahoe. So we get lots of snow. You know, I live in Oregon now. We have you know really cold dampness, and so we just learn how to dress in layers. The first layer is your base layer is generally going to be made from merino wool and it sits on your skin. And this is going to be your LLC. And so the LLC, the limit liability company is a great first layer and it's the entry place to start. It's the foundation, you know, along with insurance. We then build from here as you grow and your risk grows. Now, LLCs are great asset holding companies. You know, and they have some charging order protections that don't allow the creditor, the, you know, the person suing you to seize that asset of that entity. They limit a creditor's access to a charge to a charge against you, the member or the partner of that LLC, to the interest only in it. You know, in theory, because then you get into like piercing the corporate veil, and we'll get into like why they're weak after this. And so they're great for real estate for holding the real estate in and just getting it out of your personal name. Like something is better than nothing. And so we place things in them that have keys and can go boom, things that can hurt people and things that you need to go get insurance for, like you know rental properties, airplanes, yachts, things like that. You can place all your risky assets into an LLC, but you want to separate asset holdings from operations and operate your business dealings, like your contracting out of another LLC called an operating company. So if you're just considering this first entry level protection, you know, maybe you're just starting out, you're new to your investing world, your net worth is under $500,000 and you have zero to two units. This is where you start. But by using LLCs, what you're doing is limiting some of your personal liability and separating ownership, use and control. And if you're trying to just protect a few assets and money's limited and tight right now, the LLC and insurance is a great place to start. We just have a lot of misconceptions about them that you're just not told. You mentioned that you could purchase the property in your personal name and then just transfer it to an LLC. Are you talking about doing a quick claim deed? Any type of deed, basically, like quick claim deed, warranty deed. You know, we just deed it out of your personal name. Like the mortgage will stay in your name. And then we just transfer the title out of your name into the LLC. When you do that, I've heard that being a very common approach. I've even done it myself. Are you worried about the due on sale clause that a lot of mortgages have? Never. I think that's just a salesmanship for people to go and try to sell a land trust at the end of the day. So we have for decades, over 3,000 clients. Most of my clients have hundreds of millions of dollars. We're dealing with over you know, probably close to $6 billion worth of real estate we have to deal with over decades with hundreds of attorneys in our network. No one's ever seen a bank call a note due simply because you transferred the asset out of your personal name into your LLC. I think I've only had two conversations with the bank. And same with, I talked to like all of our affiliate attorneys. I mean, this is hundreds in every state. No one's ever seen it. No one's ever can even find a case law of it happening because the banks aren't going to rock the boat. Like if you're paying your mortgage and you're just transferring it from your name into your LLC, they may just ask a question, hey, what are you doing? 
putting it in my LLC for asset protection purposes, the conversation generally stops there if they're even going to call. Where an issue does happen is if you did that transfer, the bank notices it, and guess what? You're not paying your mortgage. Well, now it's going to be called not because of the transfer, but because you're defaulted on your mortgage, and now they're just going to foreclose on you because you're not paying your bills. For someone who is a new real estate investor that's listening to the show, let's say they have one, two, three, maybe four properties. Does every property have to have its own LLC to get that protection? It's a good question. It depends on the state and the value and the equity and the asset. I think it's overkill to say, let's just do one LLC per property. In some places like the Midwest, you can have a lot of properties under $100,000. And so it comes to a balancing act between how much equity do we want to put in and how much risk do we want to put into one LLC. So you won't want to separate out risk as much as possible, but not, and, but not overstuff, if that makes sense, an LLC with too much equity. And so it's a balancing act. So what we kind of want to do is balance the number of units in one LLC to the, the amount of unprotected equity that someone can get out of it. And so generally, rule of thumb, we say like 500,000 of equity or four units. Sometimes that just can't be done. Like let's say you're investing in California. Almost everything's almost a million dollar property in California, like the West Coast, East Coast. At that point, then we'll have to say maybe two units and put the cap at 1.2 million. It just depends at that point on the comfort level, the client's comfort level, the perceived amount of risk, what the insurance is, and how much equity we're actually dealing with. And so then we just have to come up with a comfortable balancing act. If someone does have multiple LLCs, can they just have one operating or property management LLC or do they need multiple? Yeah, that's a great question. You're like, I would hold those LLCs into a limited partnership and combine them. We can break down a limited partnership a little bit later. But what you would want to do is eventually separate out that management company and just let it exist on its own. Because management companies shouldn't own anything, but all they are is risk. So it's your big red danger button. And you want to separate that risk as far away from the assets as possible and have it own nothing. And then if what will get sued would eventually be that operating company. And that operating company should have no assets held in it. So the property management company, essentially, could that operate, could that manage company uh, properties for other people that aren't even you? Could you do it? Or do you have to have separate operating entities for that too? It just depends on that. Like, it, are you talking about like if you are a property manager and you're just managing other people's assets? Let's, let's just say you're a newer investor. You own a couple properties. You do this, this strategy you're talking about. You put those in, in one LLC and then you create an operating LLC. Could you have like your friend use the same operating LLC for management? Because then you're mixing other people's liabilities with your own assets. And so if you're going to go that way, just think about it. You don't want to combine other people's risk into your own assets. So I would protect your assets and operate them through like your limited partnership. And then if you're going to create management company with your buddies and go manage other people's properties, then that's a separate joint venture. That's a separate business. So treat it like that. What are people not talking about with LLCs? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there's some really big misconceptions with LLCs. So even though like, you know, I love LLCs and we use them to place risky assets in them like real estate and investment properties. We use them to segregate like we we're talking about assets in and put car collections in or your yachts or your airplanes. This is a great first layer of protection, but everything has kryptonite. And if you talk to Superman, kryptonite's not good. 
And the LLCs lack on efficiency. So just remember that they're what's called maybe protection. And it says it straight up, like I said before, in the name. First word, first letter, limited. They don't even hide this fact. It's limited. And we have decades of case law that exists around this fact. This is where the term piercing the corporate veil comes into play, meaning holding you personally liable, breaking through the charge and order protection and through you know, the operating agreements, no matter how well they're written. Now, this is where I do want to spend you know, some time talking about these negatives that you're just not told with the LLCs so that your listeners then understand the limitations and the need to layer as you grow. LLCs are not silver bullet werewolf slayers. Like People think for some reason you create an LLC and you're just good to go. For real estate, we generally use the state that the asset is located in. I see some people recommend using other states that are good for LLCs like Wyoming and Delaware and Nevada to physically hold real estate in. The reality is that you know, like, it's okay. It's not, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you have an investment property, let's just say in Tennessee, because everyone's going to Tennessee right now. So I'm just going to use Tennessee as an example. And it's held in a Wyoming LLC or a Delaware LLC. It's fine. But if you're sued through that Tennessee property, and you have a lawsuit against that LLC in Tennessee, you can be very certain that the Tennessee court is going to apply Tennessee law to that LLC holding Tennessee real estate, not Wyoming or Delaware law. So if you think that you can buy another state or jurisdiction's better laws by having an out-of-state LLC own an in-state asset, I don't think that's true at all. And if you can't be certain, and you can't be certain about that either, and lack of certainty is not good, especially when you're getting sued. So we typically just say, use the LLC that the asset is in, the state that the asset is in. Another problem generally is that most clients come to me with 15 LLCs, and they're all single member LLCs, and they're all disregarded entities, and they're all in the client's personal name as the member. Now we have a problem from an asset protection standpoint because the courts have a tendency to disregard those single member LLCs held by an individual, meaning you. And CPAs tend to set up LLCs as disregarded entities for tax purposes. That's great for taxes, but it's bad for lawsuits. And you need to remember that tax mitigation and asset protection are completely different. You know, or another issue here is CPAs set up S-corps for real estate. And that's another bad thing to do, especially when it comes to real estate. And the reason is because S-corps have shares. And those shares can be frozen and seized by a judge. And I actually get this a lot. You know, if you come to me with real estate in an S corp, and let's say you have $100 million worth of real estate, all within one S corp, or it can be other assets like truck beds or medical equipment, gym equipment, you know, like whatever the business is that you're in that owns something. From a liability and asset protection standpoint, it's not good. We prefer to move those assets out of the S corp, but we wouldn't want to do that at that point without you having to pay a huge tax recapture fee to the IRS. Most people just won't have that type of cash sitting around. So now we're just stuck. You know, we really can't do anything. And this could have all been avoided if the planning was set up properly from the beginning to allow you to properly grow. But to get back to being disregarded, what an LLC being disregarded means is that the IRS is not taxing your business separate from you. It passes through to you personally. And because of this, they're basically worthless for asset protection liability issues because that liability also passes directly through to you. But don't get me wrong, like I still use them, but as that base layer foundation entry position, then we build and layer the strength above it to clean that up. The second big misconception with LLCs is like, where do we even just go to set these things up? And you know, like, do you go to Delaware, Texas, Wyoming, Nevada? 
And you hear about all these states and some of these states have privacy. And so you're like, I'm just going to go do that. Well, it really just comes down to an issue of what are you holding and where are you holding it at? But you know, I think we kind of covered that pretty well. But just realize that, let's say, for example, it's California real estate and you set up a Wyoming LLC and then you bring it to California by holding a key piece of California real estate in it. And now the client's paying California franchise tax because they are a resident of California. What has just happened is that you converted that Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California. That's the state the asset is in. That's the state the injury or damage occurred in. It's going to be that state's laws that apply. And once you do that, you did this fancy legal term called availed yourself of the privileges and laws of that state and given that state the jurisdiction over your out-of-state LLC. Then it's just a matter of piercing the corporate veil. But then we get in like the big kahuna misconception, which is anonymity. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Before we go into anonymity, I want to talk about two things you mentioned, uh, the disregarded entities and then also using uh, the different states. So first, disregarded entity, we'll touch on that really quick. What is the point of an entity if you're not going to get the protection if you're using disregarded? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. Eventually, you want to, as you grow, 
have those LLCs owned by a limited partnership, a second layer up. When they're disregarded, those K-1s, those tax returns flow up and into that limited partnership. So now you only have one tax file. So what you're doing is scaling and growing and setting up the LLCs so that they flow into a limited partnership or that second you know, management company. If they're not disregarded, they can't flow into that limited partnership. So you actually want them disregarded for tax purposes so that we can connect the second layer to it. And you talked a lot about the different states. That actually applies very closely to me because I live in New Hampshire. I invest almost exclusively in Texas. I've thought a lot about this and I've also studied a lot about how a lot of businesses are registered, like big businesses are registered in Delaware, but they might be headquartered somewhere else. Talk to us a little bit about, is, is, are they doing that for tax benefits? Are they doing that for asset protection? Do they have other things set up that makes that important? Like, Why are so many companies registered in Delaware or Nevada and operate somewhere else? It's a great question. And this is where the, the problem that's not being explained comes. Real estate is completely different. So LLCs are not used as a business entity to like, you know, let's say you and I, Rob and Brian decide like, hey, man, let's go create a widget company and go sell widgets. That's an actual business. We can incorporate in Wyoming and Delaware and create our operating agreements and all of that. And then if our business falls apart, we'll get the benefits of our operating agreement being applied no matter what state we're in. That's an actual business that we're running and operating. Real estate, though, we're not operating through that LLC. We are just using the LLC to hold passively the real estate and not operate through. So it is essentially just an extension of you. And so that is the big distinction that people aren't being told of real estate is just different. It's not a business. You're not running any type of business through that LLC. They're just used as holding companies to separate the title away from you in case and when you get sued. Yeah, that's a really interesting and important distinction. I've studied this a little bit. I mean, I'm not a lawyer by any means, but I had never even heard that before. You know, the distinction between a business versus real estate. How about we talked about the operating companies? Could the operating company be in, say, Delaware? I would talk to your CPA at that point because then it's just a matter of maintenance costs and things like that. I would say, like, pick a good state, a good state that has like charging order protection around that management company, especially if it's going to be you and somebody else and you're partnering up with somebody because then you just have a straight business with another business partner. And then for that management company that's purely a management company, I would say go to like Wyoming or Delaware, Nevada and use one of those states for that. Just realize when the real estate is getting sued you know, from like a personal injury standpoint, you're just going to be paying double maintenance tax and you already converted it to that state from the franchise because you're paying franchise tax. So just keep it simple. This is going to be those state laws that apply when you're getting sued through the real estate. Talk to us a bit about the anonymity of it and how it plays <laughs> into LLCs. I can't even say the word and uh, real estate investing. The thought here with anonymity is that you can just create you know, an anonymous Wyoming LLC and just poof, you know, disappear and can never be found. Um, that you, the LLC member's name is not available to the public and you can just completely avoid or ghost a lawsuit. This is just completely false. But this is what you're hearing on investment groups and summits and what you're being told from you know, salesmen, promoters, and even some attorneys who just don't specialize in asset protection. So these people do these big long talks on hiding assets and special operating agreements. And I'm using, you know, like the word special in air quotes here. And though they may not technically be lying, if you get a judgment against you and you get called into a debtor's examination in court, you are the one that's going to have to tell them. 
you are the weak link in this line of secrecy. So under oath, you're going to have to tell them that, yeah, I set up a Wyoming LLC, and now your privacy plan has just exploded. You just exploded your own plan. Privacy is fine, but secrecy and hiding assets is not. Wyoming LLCs have their place in asset protection and in the world of asset protection as a first line of defense for business owners for privacy. You know, not placing yourselves at risk of harm or harassment, like somebody getting mad at Rob because I don't like my landlord and I'm going to go egg your house. It's a privacy mechanism before lawsuits start. But this doesn't mean that your identity can't be easily found or that when your LLC is sued, that you won't be legally required to appear and defend yourself in your LLC in court. Because if you don't show up, you're going to get a default judgment against you. Wyoming and Delaware LLCs and out-of-state LLCs require personal agents of service. Their sole job is to serve you and tell you, hey, congratulations, you just got sued and now go and defend yourself. The simple reality is that once a lawsuit is filed, the discovery process of litigation begins and you will be served and you'll be subpoenaed and forced into court. And what's even worse is that if you want secrecy to even work, also known as lying under oath, and then you know, you're going to have to tell the court that you don't own anything. And then that's just a one-way ticket to jail. And an example of this is what I mentioned above, that very shortly after judgments entered against a person, creditors had the legal right to demand information about the assets you own, and the courts enforced this right very broadly. So at this point in litigation, the only way to keep an asset anonymous or a secret is to lie about them and commit perjury. We don't advocate for hiding. We just prefer to have a full disclosure of a proper asset protection plan and just set it up properly to work. So for assets that are real estate, again, just use the state that the real estate is located in because again, you're not gaining anything by using another state. You're just doubling your maintenance costs. You know, you can't buy another state's laws for out-of-state assets. So just keep it simple and then add layers to that protection system as, the, as you grow. Just remember the weakness with LLCs is that it's just maybe protection. So there's a lot of uncertainty, and uncertainty is not good, especially when strength and power is important. So you know, as you grow and accumulate more assets and more LLCs, you want to scale up to a limited partnership to start consolidating all of them. Before we get into limited partnerships, which we'll talk about next, I have a question about where to go to actually get this all set up and I study Charlie Munger a lot. And one of Charlie Munger's biggest thing is to study incentives. And so I know before I even ask this question, you're going to be, you, this is what you do for a living. So you're kind of like incentivized in a way to say, you know, you need to go through an attorney. But with that in mind, there are so many services online, right? That I can't even think of a name. And I don't want to put any names out there that you could get an LLC in 10 minutes or, you know, whatever. They're super Ooh. cheap. Do we need an yeah. attorney to do this for us? Can we do it online? And if we do need an attorney, how do we find them? How do we know if they're a good one? Do they have to be in our state? Talk us through like, how do we find the right process for us? Yeah. The reason you want an attorney to do this would be the same reason why you want to go to a doctor when you're sick. You know, you're not a doctor. And so you're not going to be able to create the LLCs with the fine detail that need to be done in the operating agreements and then connect it to the limited partnership and then have the proper structure for the limited partnership. And even in asset protection trust, which is like very strong protection, because you don't know the details. And when you're getting sued, the attorney who's there to destroy your life is looking for one single word to completely disassemble this, or you didn't fund it properly. There's so many legal, so much legal details that have to get done to properly create even the base structure and how you fund it. 
that if one thing's done wrong, your, your veil's pierced. If you operate incorrectly, your veil's pierced. If you commingle and don't have a good accounting, your veil is pierced. And so by being cheap, you know, and I hate to use that word cheap, but it, it is what it is. You know, what is it? Penny wise dollar stupid. You saved a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, and then you're going to lose a hundred thousand dollars down the line in a lawsuit because you chose to create something cheap from the beginning and you get what you pay for. And so the only thing you really care about your asset protection structure is what? Have it work and be effective when you're getting sued in court. That's the only thing that matters at that point. And so I don't think, you know, if you're going to sit there on Google and try to create a business entity or talk to a non-attorney, you know, legal solution provider, we'll just call it. If you ask them what's your legal advice and they can't give you a legal opinion, I would not recommend listening to what they have to say. Because at the end of the day, when you're getting sued and it's all your money on the line, and the other attorney across the street, you know, across the bar from you is trying to completely destroy you and take everything from you, that's when you need this stuff to work. And so the way I would go about finding an attorney of it is you can go and do, you know, just start researching asset protection attorneys, but go on their websites and see what people write about them, see what the reviews are about them before you call them. Find out what areas of practice do they practice in? Are they really a real estate attorney who does deals and dabbles in asset protection or are they just an asset protection attorney? Are they a you know, business attorney who doesn't do much about asset protection and just drafts contracts and closes deals? Because at this level, you need a specialist for asset protection to actually work. And what, what happens is most attorneys will go and do a different area of practice like estate planning, drafting wills and trusts. That's not asset protection. That's after life planning. They take a CLE course, a continuing legal education course, and one seminar, and they learn a very, very minute base level education on something because they realize they can go and sell something else, another product and service and make some more money out of it. But they don't understand the detail about how it works and how to properly do it. So what you should be looking for before you start making calls are, is this basically all this attorney does? It would just be like you wanted, you know, needing brain surgery. You're not going to go to a general doctor and say, hey, cut open my skull and operate on my brain. You're going to go to a, a neurosurgeon. I know it's going to vary significantly from person to person, deal to deal, situation to situation, but give us the general idea. What is the cost of something like we've been, what we've been talking about, especially if you, if you hire an attorney? Like, What are we looking at? Are we looking at 500 to 1,000? Are we looking at 5,000 to 10,000? Just give me a general range or idea of what somebody might have to spend for this. Just the base level foundation, like, you know, I would say factor in, I would say on average $1,000 per LLC and then go get insurance, you know, and that's going to vary. As you scale up, let's say you're going to then need, you know, a second layer, a limited partnership, you're going to probably spend around, I'd say on average 6,000 for a limited partnership. And then asset protection trust will vary depending on how strong they need to be for the client. It can be anywhere from like, you know, 10,000 to 50,000, depending on if you're purely domestic to purely foreign or a hybrid in the middle. And so it just depends on what the client's needs are going to be on, on, at that level. When it comes to using an attorney for this kind of thing, is there any type of protection or backup for us as someone who hired the attorney if the attorney did something wrong in court? Like, let's just say you do get sued, you go to court and the other attorney finds that your attorney did something wrong. And so therefore, you know, that one word that you mentioned was missing because your attorney made a mistake. Is there any protection for you as the asset owner or is that kind of you're just out of luck? It depends on the, t- on the error at the end of the day. You know, like you can then go ahead and try to sue your attorney, but remember like a lawsuit, someone's always going to lose and it just kind of comes with the territory. It depends on how egregious, you know, the, the error and mistake was. 
So I say yes. And then you can go through like your ethical bar, the state bar and file a complaint. If it was really bad, they'll review it. Or you can go and talk to a malpractice attorney. And then they can look over and say like, you just lost because you lost. You know, it wasn't really that determining on that issue. And so that's kind of how that would lie on in there. I was just thinking more along the lines of you were told that you set it up the right way. Everything was done and you kind of got caught on a technicality, not actually what you were being sued about, something like that. Yeah, I would just say, you know, like I would have it reviewed. If it was that big of a loss, then I would definitely go and have it reviewed by another attorney and then go through your options from there. What if somebody listening is an investor already? They own a couple properties, but they're still pretty small and they've already done some of this. They didn't necessarily maybe do it the right way or they did it themselves. Or they didn't hire an attorney. Is it too late for them or how do they go about that? No, that's when you call people like us. Most of the people come to me with like messed up 15 messed up LLCs and millions of dollars worth of assets, just all scattered like a massive mess. And that's our job is to clean up the mess. And generally, I'm not looking so much about the LLCs because I'm going to merge those into an easier flow limited partnership to manage it. Because for us, like when it gets into higher levels of protection, the foundation stuff, I'm not really that worried about. It's the second and third layers where the magic really starts happening. So we'll just clean up a little bit of the LLCs. And then the really big issue is just get those into the limited partnership and then see what other pieces they're missing to help manage their lives a little bit better. And the last thing I want to chat about real quick before we get into limited partnerships, that kind of next layer of protection is house hacking, because I'm actually writing a book on house hacking right now. I just signed a book deal with Simon & Schuster, and I recommend this strategy to a lot of people. So I want to talk a bit about how asset protection, LLCs, things like that come into play with house hacking. Yeah, that's a great question. The issue with house hacking is you, you live in it. And so you don't want to transfer it out of your name into an LLC or any business entity. Because eventually when you go down the line to sell it, because you're not going to be in it forever, you lose a $250,000 tax credit, homeownership benefits and all of that because it's no longer your personal residence. It's owned by an LLC. And that's a heck of a lot of money to just like throw away to the wind. And so you need to realize there's a benefit of being a homeowner and having that home tax benefit in your name. And then I think to recoup that, you have to transfer the asset back It's either two out of five consecutive years or three out of five consecutive years. Most people, when they sell a property, it's a quick decision. You know, like, oh, hey, babe, like it's time to scale up or like let's cash flow recycle this into something else. You make that within a couple of months decision or you you have a job change and you need to get going. Um, You just lost $250,000. And so, you know, when it comes to house hacking, insurance is going to be where you're going to be lying with that. Let's say you own a duplex with one extra unit. Could you get by with just insurance? Is insurance enough in that case? Yeah, it depends on. Yeah, and then at that point, it just depends on the type of lawsuit. If it was a massive mold claim and someone got sick and died, like, no, you know, you're going to get wiped out. You just hope that the insurance amount will cover it all. If it doesn't, unfortunately, then no. Or if you're, you know, had a glass of wine or a beer and you're driving down the street and someone ran a red light and you T boned them and someone died, but like, would your insurance cover you for that? No, because you were intoxicated. Like not not drunk, but you had alcohol in your system. And so then they're going to go into intentional wrongdoing arguments and, and wiggle out of the insurance coverage. You've mentioned mold a couple of times. And I actually have a friend who got very, very, very sick. They, she rented an apartment and her landlord apparently didn't know or you know whatever the case is. I don't want to go into that details, but she, she didn't know that there was mold there. She got very, very sick, almost died from it. 
and a uh, big lawsuit and she won. And so, you know, of course her being my friend, I'm glad that it worked out in her favor, but me being a real estate investor, you know, I kind of panic a little bit and think like, you know, what do I need to do to not be that guy? And like, how do I protect myself? So talk to us a little bit, I guess, about bold and like, what do we do in that case? I mean, I would just make sure you do your, in, in, you know, property and mitigate your damage. Like at the end of the day, those type of things, the asset protection planning would help you from collectability of losing the lawsuit, not from preventing the lawsuit. Like asset protection won't won't necessarily prevent you from being sued, especially in really big issues like that. It's a matter of how strong is the system. When it comes to mold, I would just say do some two inspections a year, and especially in heavy areas where you know mold is going to be coming in, or if you live in a really damp area like Oregon, or when I was living out in Michigan, you know, like uh, and we were living in Lake Michigan, like Matt, I had to deal with like a $40 million mold claim of an apartment complex. And so you just mitigate your damage and do property inspections to make sure then if you do get sued on those things, you weren't negligent because you didn't do the inspections and you weren't checking it out. So you're going to mitigate how much you're going to have to pay. So I would just do mitigation strategies from there, as well as any other potential negligent things that can happen. You know, that's why maintain your property at the end of the day, because what you're doing is a one form of asset protection in damage mitigation. If you did have a, a case like this and you had the right asset protection in place, would that limit the damage you had from a mold claim or can, is a mold claim so serious that it would even go past any asset protection that you've done? If you had it, the worst, you can have like the worst case in the world, like someone died from it. That's where the highest levels of asset protection, like a bridge trust or a fully formed asset protection trust comes into play. Because at that point, it doesn't matter. Like the whole reason you set up those levels of asset protection and trust are to protect you from doomsday clean out lawsuits like that to where, okay, great. This is a massively bad lawsuit. I am going to lose. I am going to lose everything. We just break the bridge and move the equity, you know, to like the Cook Islands. And at that point, you're uncollectible legally. And that's why they're the strongest trusts on the world for like 40 years, global gold standard. So at that point, once the other party knows that you have a potential Cook Islands trust in play, generally they walk away or they'll take a penny on the dollar and just go because they, they realize even the IRS, the government, you know, the man can't win cases in the Cook Islands and get money out of it. We're going to talk about that in a bit. So let's work our way there. Let's start with limited partnerships. You've mentioned them quite a few times. Tell us what exactly they are, how they differ from LLCs, and why you use them as a second layer of protection. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, it's a great question. And the limited partnership comes into play around 450000 to 700000 of unprotected net assets. And generally, you have four different properties you know, and possibly investing in multiple states along with, you know, personal stocks and some crypto. And you need to realize, you know, crypto is an asset. It's defined by the IRS as a property. The exchanges have to be protected. So it's just not an asset that doesn't exist. I'm um, just like a little FYI on that. Limited partnerships, it's similar to an LLC in that it has a layer of protection around it to limit your liability. And they have some charging order protection and built-in statutory privacy. This mid layer is your holding company. And it's this mid layer where you do actually want to use one of those states that has really good protection around the LLCs like Arizona, Nevada, Wyoming, or Delaware. This mid layer protection should be a multi member entity. You know, whereas that base layer LLC that we just talked about can and will be a single member LLC in most cases. At that base level layer, you know, that single member LLC is going to be disregarded for tax purposes, remember. 
But as you stage and grow your protection, you want it disregarded for tax purposes because when you know you a client come to me with 15 pieces of real estate and like 10 LLCs, we don't want you to have 10 separate tax returns. So by making those base layer LLCs single member LLCs, it helps with tax filings when we add this mid-layer limited partnership because all those K1s flow directly through to that management company. So it's just one tax return filing. And having just one tax return is really important for clients. But the you know, limited partnership is a step up from an LLC since it also works really well as an asset holding company because it has two different classes of ownerships that LLCs just don't have. Limited partnerships have a general partnership interest and a limited partnership interest. So think of it as like a split personality. The GP is the controlling interest. And that's going to be typically you, the client that gives you control of your assets to keep investing and managing the assets that are held in that portion of it. The limited minority partnership, the LP, is your asset protection bridge trust. You know, and that's the ownership interest. So that's where you separate out management of assets from ownership of the limited partnership. And so but by dividing it up like this, you get a separation of ownership and control. And remember, asset protection is about separation, strength, and power. You just cannot get this with an LLC. But unfortunately, I see this a lot with clients having that second layer of protection being you know, another LLC or a Wyoming LLC and not a limited partnership. We use an Arizona limited partnership as the starting point for clients at this mid-layer, like that second layer holding company. And then we'll add that bridge trust to it for the actual strong asset protection component. But one of the main reasons we use Arizona specifically for the limited partnership is because of this code section, ARS section 29-333. This section specifically allows for a limited partnership to make what's called a unilateral withdrawal from the limited partnership on a predefined event like a lawsuit. And this is specifically unique to Arizona. And it becomes very handy when we connect that third layer asset protection trust to the limited partnership because it allows the trust to disconnect from the holding company during that duress and demand the assets legally from that doomsday lawsuit and then just disappear and be gone with it. And this just can't be done with an LLC. And some of the other specific reasons I prefer an Arizona limited partnership over Wyoming LLC or any other ones at this second layer are you have exclusive charging order protections to Arizona as the only remedy for creditors of a partnership. You have an actual statutory distinction between general partners and limited partnerships. This is by statute. This is better than LLCs because LLCs can only do this by an operating agreement that the courts will have to interpret. So now you're left at a court interpretation and judge interpretation. And then again, we have ARS section 29-333 that lets us do that unilateral withdrawal. This just cannot be done at all with LLCs without now exposing you to a fraudulent transfer argument. And then Arizona doesn't require listing the limited partnerships. So you only need to list the GP, the general partner. So by their nature, limited partners have privacy. And then for tax filing purposes, your limited partnership cannot be a disregarded entity. But LLCs with just one member are automatically considered a disregarded entity. And remember, being disregarded is not good for liability issues and lawsuits. 
And so you just have so many additional protection mechanisms statutorily built in the limited partnerships. It really is the combination of the two working together, the limited partnership and the asset protection trust that we start capitalizing on. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. At the very beginning of your answer there, you mentioned kind of the threshold where limited partnerships start to become worthwhile. And is that in the equity that you have in properties or is that just the value of the properties? Great, good question. It's always going to be unprotected equity. Okay, because if you're getting sued, let's say it's a million dollar property. If I own it outright and have 100% equity, I'm worth 100 million, you know, a million dollars. If I have a mortgage on it and I only own 20% of it, I really can only be collected on what I own, which is the equity value of that the $200,000. So that's all that worth. And so we're always looking at equity value and then unprotected net assets. So for example, I would not include into your net worth a calculation of like 401ks and IRAs because those have exemption status. So I know this is probably to an attorney like you seems like a dumb question or even a dumb thought, but like for somebody like me or even real estate investors who don't study this, 
they can't collect on a property's value if you have a mortgage, right? They can't collect that amount that you owe as well. It's only, it's strictly that equity piece. That's where they start going into the other things that you own. Okay. So it's not just saying, so the first place you look when you're getting sued is the, like you look for easy access first. So it's always cash on hand. How much do they have in this checking account or savings account from there? What are the, what else do they own? Then let's say it's an excess of the cash on hand that you have. Then we're going to go into what's your equity in your house. Okay. And now we're adding the amount to the total. So if it's a million dollar judgment, I'm going to take from the checking account, savings account. I'm going to take the equity from your house, force you to sell your house. Then let's say we still don't add up to the amount. Now I'm going to go into personal brokerage accounts. I'm going to go into, you know, what crypto do you own? What real estate investments do you own? And we're going to start taking, like, force selling all of that to equal the amount of the damage. If you have the right asset protection in place, does it stop at that equity that you have in that one property? If you have the right asset protection in place, it just completely stops. Again, asset protection is looking at collectability. So at the end of the day, I don't want you to pay a penny. What other types of assets? You mentioned 401ks and IRAs that are not collectible. Yeah. So these are going to be exemption planning and they're going to be different from like federal to, to different states. And so, you know, I think this would be just like, what's the difference between, I guess, exemptions versus uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Asset protection would be like a great kind of question for that. And so our two biggest tools that we have are exemption planning and asset protection planning, like, like LLCs, limited partnerships, trust. What exemption planning refers to is the type of protection we get from state and federal laws that exempts assets from creditors. Um, the creditor is valid, you know, the claim is valid, the lawsuit is valid, the judgment is valid. But just this asset is just not something that they can collect on. So a few examples are homestead exemptions, like in Florida, 100% homestead exemption, ARISA 401k plans, which are you know, federally protected, IRA plans, you know, which are going to be state protected. So they're going to vary from state to state on the amount that's, that's exempted. Same with life insurance and annuities, and there's going to be a state differential from that. And then some assets through bankruptcy. And the way most exemptions are used is through bankruptcy. So it has some limitations, and we really need to think about if you even want to or qualify to declare bankruptcy. Now, asset protection planning is different. It does not rely on state and federal statutes to say, hey, these are exempt. It just uses legal tools to limit the access of the asset to a creditor. And these are you know, spendthrift trust, charge order protection entities like LLCs and limited partnerships, or locked up unreachable assets. You know? So for example, while the asset is locked up, let's say by debt, so some debt can be good from an asset protection standpoint because so, there's no access to the cash. And that's what creditors are after. So now you're going to probably be asking, okay, so which one is better, right? You know, like exemption planning or asset protection planning. You may be looking at exemption status and thinking, like, okay, this looks better. So why not just do exemption planning all the time? But the drawback with exemption planning is that it can't just be arbitrarily expanded, meaning, like, you can't just say, okay, great, your state has all these exemptions. Let's just move and convert all the assets into them. And it's really hard and almost impossible to convert 100% of a client's assets you know, into an exemption status. So then you still need additional planning. So the best practice procedure on this would be to maximize exemption planning first, you know, like investing in 401ks and things like that, and then move on to asset protection planning for the non-exempt assets, and then combine a domestic and offshore trust with a hybrid trust 
which we can break down if we got time later on for really strong protection. So it sounds to me like the states that people live in actually matters, could matter a lot more than, than people think. I think a lot of times people are like, Oh, this is a cool place to live. Right. Like like, OJ Simpson, like, you know, most people know who OJ Simpson is. Even if you don't watch follow football, people know the story. And so here you have an NFL, you know, retired NFL player who gets charged criminally for murdering his wife and her boyfriend. He wins the, he's found not guilty. The family sues him civilly. All right. For wrongful death, loses the case. But he was never able to be collected on because his mansion was the Florida mansion, a fully 100% exempted. And the rest of his assets were federally ARISA protected exempt because it was his NFL pension plan. And so he was never able to be collected on. And so if you go to another state like California, like he would be SOL. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot, I mean, I had never given that thought like where I live. I just think, oh, my family, friends live here. There's cool beaches, mountains, whatever, yeah. you know, the things people yeah. like to think about, not, not this kind of so stuff. That's where the state, one of the first things I ask when a, when a client calls, like what state do you live in? Because I need to start sorting through what are all my different options that I have for you. In the OJ example, is it able to go back? So like he, at the time, you know, he was in the NFL and he lived in Florida. If he ends up moving in the future, let's just say he moved to California, right? And then he be- gets a bunch of equity in California. Can they then go after him then? Well, then, yeah, that judgment will be sitting there. Like if he started getting other assets and like non-exempt statuses, then they can start appealing that. And so, you know, it just, it just is where you're going to go from the future. But he was not collectible on that because all his assets were held in exempt statuses. So he had this massive judgment against him that just couldn't be collected on because of the exemption status of everything that he owned. And when we talk about limited partnerships, do you have to have, I know this is kind of probably a funny question, but do you have to have two people? You do. You have to have two people. And so generally it would be like spouse, husband, and wife. If you don't, then it would be like find a sibling or a parent and then give them a 1% ownership interest on the LP side. So it won't affect their taxes or their liability because it's completely passive, but you do need two people. And how about series LLCs? Before we get into trusts, I'm curious about series LLCs because yeah. it's, it's one of the most common things that comes up in my search. And again, I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. And that's just something that's always been. Yeah, it's a great question. It's the same as an LLC. You know, like, let's just call it, it is what it is. You know, at, at the end of the day, a series LLC is an LLC until you start creating little children underneath it. And the idea is to break them up into separate little segregated LLCs underneath so that if a property A explodes, it doesn't affect property B. Okay. The problem with this is one, it's the new kid in school. So there's no case law on are these subchildren going to be exercised how they theoretically should be in a lawsuit. And then the other big problem here is let's say you live in California. California doesn't recognize a series LLC. So not all states recognize them. Only a very small amount of states recognize and have series LLC statutes. So unless you, the client, and the asset both exists in a series friendly, series LLC friendly state. I would not use or recommend a series LLC because if you get sued from a state that does not recognize them, you will not get the benefit from them. And so that's where we have to understand is will I use them? Yes, in a limited capacity and all the elements that I need to check off the box have to exist for me to be comfortable using it because they're not accepted everywhere. And there's no case law even on them. So in the realm of a lawsuit, 
lack of certainty is very dangerous. And so when I'm protecting people's assets, I don't want to say, let's gamble and maybe it'll work and maybe not. I want to say, like, I can tell you for certainty, you know, here's 40 years of case law up to the Supreme Court, this will work. A series LLC, I can say, like, well, if you money's cheap and you want to gamble, let's roll the dice. So a series LLC would not be a replacement for a limited partnership. No, no, I would use it as a foundational piece. So I would use it as a foundation. And then the limited partnership would own the series LLC. So we've talked a lot about LLCs and all of that, but you've talked about trust too. So let's get into some of the asset protection trusts and some other trusts as well. First, break down what a living revocable trust is and does it protect somebody's assets? That's a great question. So no, it doesn't. They're not designed to, so they can't. A revocable living trust is simply a trust to avoid probate, death taxes, name your beneficiaries so the assets get to whoever you're going to give them You know when you do pass. And they only come to effect when you die. And it's really just naming your medical directives and your financial directives. They're completely different types of trust. And, so, and they're just not designed to, to work as an asset protection trust. And so what an asset protection trust is... You know, so let me, let me just like backtrack on this. Like the standard 101 trust that everybody's familiar with you know, from the 60s is this revocable living trust. You know, from there, you have higher levels of trust, and they're called asset protection trusts. And so I want to spend a little bit of time here breaking down the three types. You know? And after this, I think you and your listeners will probably know more than 99% of most attorneys out there about asset protection trusts. And so these really came in in about the early 1980s. And an asset protection trust is what's called a self-settled spendthrift trust. So all self-settled means is that you are creating it for yourself. So they are for you, by you, as your own beneficiary. And they have the very important spendthrift provisions in them. This lets you protect your assets while you're actually living from creditors and not having to relinquish control of your assets. You know, the difference is they allow you to protect the assets, not just for your grandkids, but for yourself, which you weren't allowed to do in the past. And they have those spendthrift provisions that allow you to protect your assets from creditors. And they're the actual teeth behind the trust. And for those to work, the trust has to be not revocable, but irrevocable. So they're a very different type of trust. And now this is where the fun really starts to happen. There's two major school of thoughts, the international and the domestic, that you can go and set them up here in the United States or offshore. And I'm going to talk about them both through a historical context. And it's very important if you're going to understand how trusts work and why like a hybrid bridge trust works the way that it works to understand the basic concepts of, of them both. Now, the difference with asset protection trusts really comes down to just where do you set them up in? Do you go offshore? Do you go domestic? Do we you know, do this hybrid? And for the historical context, the offshore trust came first in 1984 in the famous Cook Islands. They created the first statutory trust. I like and choose the Cook Islands if and when it's applicable just because they have the best home court advantage. Why it's the best is because asset protection is what these trusts and the Cook Islands statutes were specifically drafted for. And the power of the foreign offshore trust is that it has statutory non-recognition of any other jurisdictional court orders in the world, including the United States. What this means is that if you have a judgment against you in the United States, and they took it down to the Cook Islands because they see a Cook Islands trust is in play, and your, your US judgment is completely worthless there. It literally has no value whatsoever. 
statutorily, the Cook Islands are prohibited from recognizing it. If somebody wants to sue your trust in the Cook Islands, they would have to start their case all over from scratch. The person suing you would have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the murder standard, the highest legal standard in the world, the 99% sure standard. You can't get a contingency fee attorney to represent you because they're not allowed down there. It's unethical on the Cook Islands, just like it used to be ethical here in the United States, but that got changed in the 60s. The claim, meaning the lawsuit's not amendable, meaning that once you file your complaint, that's it. You know, like you can't change it or amend it after discovery like you can in the United States. The person suing you will have to front the entire court cost and then fly in a judge from New Zealand. And if you lose, you pay. And this is one of the single worst things that you know, we don't have in the United States, that the loser does not need to pay the legal fees and costs of the winner. So if you get sued by somebody for a completely bogus reason, I mean, just a complete frivolous lawsuit, and you spend you know, $200,000 defending yourself on legal fees, and then finally the court throws that lawsuit out, you're still at $200,000. That person that sued you is not going to be given the bill because in our legal system in the United States, that would discourage lawsuits. And our legal system is run by trial lawyers who don't want to discourage lawsuits. Not to mention the statute of limitations is short. It's most likely already run because there's only one year for a one-year statute of limitations. But the drawback, because remember, like I said, like everything has kryptonite, right? The cost is going to be high. I mean, generally, these type of trusts are anywhere from you know, like you know, thirty-five to forty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars to set up. And for you to be purely foreign trust, you now have a lot of IRS reporting compliance and disclosures to file every year, as well as FACTA account compliance and disclosing a full balance sheet disclosure. So that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And so many clients are just not comfortable with that. So while we have the most effective trust in the world by far, it's not something that we usually are starting out with because of the fact that we have all these drawbacks, which then goes to the second option, the domestic asset protection trust. The domestic trust came into play about 10 years later in Alaska, then not to be outdone. Now we have like Wyoming, Delaware, and Nevada followed suit. And now we have about 19 states with domestic asset protection trust statutes. So the states are jumping on board, seeing that our legal system is now a threat and that things need to get done to protect your assets. And so asset protection in the United States is very valid. You know, so asset protection as a concept is, is very important to understand that it's valid. How you do it is really where it gets important. The issue with the purely domestic asset protection trust is that we live in the United States of America. We have a constitution. You know, we have Article 4, Section 1, which is the full faith and credit clause. This clause provides that every state must grant full faith and credit to the jurisdictional proceedings of every other state. This means that, for example, Nevada can pass an asset protection statute, but it can't ignore a California or Washington or Florida court order. So where the Cook Islands can just throw that California judgment in the trash, Nevada can't. Nevada has to respect it constitutionally. And now courts are just simply ignoring the choice of law clause. The legal landscape is shifting again. And failure means breach and assets are lost. And so this is just completely unacceptable. And so because of the case law that we're seeing, I'm not a big fan of a purely domestic asset protection trust or just anything purely domestic without a built-in offshore component. And that comes into the hybrid option, which is called a bridge trust. And so I prefer a bridge trust for 95% of all of our clients. 
It's a hybrid, like a hybrid car, combining the best of the domestic and the best of the foreign components. And what we're doing is just combining the best of both. It's been around for over 28 years. And at the end of the day, it's a fully registered foreign offshore asset protection trust with all those 40 years worth of case law. So it's fully registered offshore from day one with an offshore trustee. They're sitting there in standby in case you need them. But we build the bridge back for the IRS and for IRS purposes, because the IRS then will classify that trust as a domestic trust by complying with this section, USC Section 7701. So it's like having two passports. You can have your Swiss passport and the US passport. And as long as you have your US passport, the US will always consider you a US resident. So because of that bridge, as long as we have our compliance, we stay classified domestically. And what this means is that the the trust is cheaper to set up, it's more flexible, and you have none of all those annoying IRS compliances and no IRS tax filings and disclosures at all because the trust is actually a U.S. grantor's trust. But you now get the power of the offshore trust if and when you ever need it because it's now in your toolbox. And so during a big state of duress, like a doomsday lawsuit, your attorney would declare a state of duress and we would break the compliance IRS bridge by removing you as the trustee. And so now you have the full strength of the Offshore Cook Islands Trust because of that. And so that's where the true flexibility comes into play. And then the costs are going to be more reasonable. So now you have the most efficient trust, the easiest one to maintain, as well as one that's going to be reasonable on cost. What do those costs look like instead? Yeah. So to set up a fully, a fully foreign trust, you're generally going to be looking at like 50000 All right. Versus a bridge trust, you're going to be looking around like twenty and 3000 The annual maintenance of fully foreign trust is generally about 10000 We tell people like average about 10000 a year. Plus, you're going to have the FACTA IRS compliance and your other you know, disclosure you know, IRS compliance. And those are not cheap. And it's really time-consuming for your CPA to do those. You don't have those IRS disclosures at all with the, the trust being domesticated. So FACTA compliance is out, 1035s and 1035As don't exist. The annual maintenance cost for a bridge trust is generally about what, like $2,600 a year. So it's a lot cheaper. It's still an investment, but the investment works out when they say you have about a million dollars or more of unprotected assets and you have a high-risk profession, like either a full-time real estate investor doctor, surgeon, CPA, lawyer, plus real estate. Would you say that the Cook Islands are kind of like Delaware in a sense to use an analogy, kind of how like all these businesses? Yeah, I would think that's pretty pretty fair. They're the best when it comes to asset protection because that's all that they do. They don't have other... And they don't dabble in taxes. So there's no tax issues where you're going to get red flag. So all they do is maintain the statutes for compliance and asset protection trust. They don't have any other industry. So there's no other agreements with the US or EU, you know, like European Union. There's no trade agreements there because they have no other trade. They don't have sugar. They're not doing tourism. There's no black pearls, white pearls. Um, that's all that they do. There's no tourism. So you can't go to the Cook Islands? You can go there, but it's not like you just don't go there for a vacation. Like it's not their service. They don't have a service industry for it. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, you don't you don't go there. Like there's some hotels, like little mom and pop places there, but that's not what they're literally whole sole business and economy is based around very strong asset protection trust. Have you ever been there? No, but I should go out. And like our offshore trustee South Pack keeps asking me to come out, but 
Like if I ever have to meet up, I just go like, let's meet in New Zealand and go there because it's just too time consuming. <laughs> like I said, that's one of the hurdles to like statutory hurdles is getting there. Yeah, I pulled it up you on the map. Physically try, you have to physically try the case there in the Cook Islands and find a judge from New Zealand and try to find one of their local attorneys to represent you. I guess on the bright side, you'd have a pretty cool place to stay while, right. <laughs> while the case is going on. But uh, yeah, I looked it up on the map. It's out in the middle of nowhere. But yeah. uh, Brian, I've had a, a great time on this call. It's, my brain kind of hurts, to be honest. It's been fascinating to learn about all this stuff. And there's a bunch more that we could, we could talk about. So we'll have to get you back on the show. Before we wrap up, where can everybody go to find you? Yeah, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. And I use it more as like an educational resource with a lot of case law and frequently asked questions and videos. Awesome. I will be sure to put a link to all your resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, I had a great time. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.